Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The New Statesman. I'm Zoe Grunewald, political reporter, and you're listening to the New Statesman's twice-weekly political podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to Dr Hannah White, director at the Institute for Government. Hannah is a former parliamentary clerk and author of Held in Contempt, What's Wrong with the House of Commons? Today, we'll be discussing what's behind Britain's declining trust in public institutions. Hannah, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Before I get to question you, I wanted to start by setting out the landscape a bit, so the context for this chat. Back in March, research by the UK Constitution Unit at the University College London showed that trust in politicians is at a low ebb and the health of UK democracy matters as much to voters as issues such as crime and immigration. The research found that the public had an overwhelming support for stronger independent regulators, with the majority wanting an independent regulator to be able to launch its own investigations into alleged ministerial wrongdoing. Despite this, public confidence in UK institutions only seems to be decreasing. So a recent study published by Unheard showed that only 24% of people say they have confidence in the government, compared to 29% pre-pandemic. 22% of people only have confidence in Parliament compared to 32% during the pandemic. And trust in the press, unfortunately for us here at the New Statesman, seems to have stayed extremely low at around 13%. I think the only country that has less trust in the media than us is Egypt. Of the 20 countries they surveyed, but yeah, it's not good. And obviously we know there's been a lot of conversation around decreasing trust in the police following the murder of Sarah Everard and subsequent allegations of misogyny, racism and violence. So a different set of polling from the I now says that 26% of people say they have a positive view of police in Great Britain, compared with 40% who actively feel negatively towards them. The only institution that seems to have more trust now, rather ironically, is the European Union, which 39% of people say they trust, as opposed to 32% pre-pandemic. So it gives you a little snapshot into where the public is in Britain in terms of how we feel about our institutions. I wonder, Hannah, I've just chucked a load of stats at you, and maybe the answer feels pretty clear from what I've just read out, but do you think the UK has a sort of particular crisis of trust at the moment? 
I think the statistics you've just given us don't paint a very pretty picture, do they? And I think the issue is that we know this. Trust in all our institutions has been low for some time and declining. And yet my fear is there's a sort of sense of fatalism about that in our political class, a sense that it was ever thus. There's not much we can do about it. It's just the condition of politicians not to be trusted and we might bewail it, but we carry on as we were before rather than really seriously thinking, what could we do to change it? And I think you can see if you look at other countries that they do achieve high levels of trust in their institutions or even growing levels of trust. And so I don't think it's okay to just be so fatalistic about it. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I I looked at the Edelman Trust Barometer, which gives you an indication of where countries sit and how much they kind of trust businesses and politicians and government and it does seem that the UK is comparatively very low and consistently quite low. I wondered if you think there's something specific about maybe UK institutions or us as Brits that make us particularly untrusting or if there's something about the way our constitution is set up that means we don't tend to have a lot of trust in our institutions. One thing I think it probably is important to say as a counterpoint to all this <laughs> depression that we've got ourselves into, is that in some respects, as a country, we're very lucky. As you said, there is a low level of trust now in the police, and particularly, I think, among women in the wake of various incidents. But we're not a country where, essentially, you have to pay a bribe to any public official to get a permit or a driving licence or planning to do something. We're not generally a country in which you have to know somebody to get a job in the civil service or to get an an advantage. And there are countries where those sorts of problems are completely endemic and blight people's everyday lives. And so I'm not saying there isn't corruption in the UK. I'm not saying there aren't good reasons for people to worry about certain institutions. But it is important to think that actually when we at the Institute for Government, for example, think about problems in government, those, those issues about nepotism and graft and so on, aren't the place we have to start. We have to start with a different set of problems. To go back to your question about is there something particular about the UK, I think there are a couple of things that people often point to. The fact that we have a very vibrant press, which is very good at doing investigative work and finding out things that have been done wrong and putting those on the front page without fear or favour, I think means that the public tend to have a reasonable chance of finding out when things have gone wrong. And I would say, actually, I think after a couple of years now of really some extraordinary sort of scandals and political turmoil, The press, I think, is even more hooked than ever on those (laughs) sorts of stories, which in some ways is absolutely right. In other ways, we sometimes find it really hard to get people to focus on the boring but really important stuff about what government is and isn't doing, because as soon as there's a whiff of a scandal, that's the way the whole press pack want to go. And we just think we can't put out this worthy report about the NHS this week because nobody will cover it because we're all talking about Richard Sharp or whatever it is. Mm. So I think there's something about the press... There's also something about the fact we actually have quite good systems in place to investigate and deal with wrongdoing when it happens. I think we all had our head in our hands watching Boris Johnson in front of the Privileges Committee. But then I was talking to someone from the US and they said, we're astounded with so much in admiration that you 
have the possibility of a parliamentary committee calling back a former PM and making them sit for three hours in front of them and questioning them about something that they did in office. And that wasn't a pretty picture. On the other hand, we have these systems which expose these things, which maybe has that kind of productive effect of driving down trust because people see when things go wrong. Mm. So it's a sort of a, it's a good thing we have those systems, but it might end up being bad for public trust in the system. Absolutely. I think talking about Boris Johnson in front of the Privileges Committee is a really interesting example because we saw before he was called to give evidence that he was taught, he was trying to slightly undermine them, undermine their evidence base and wondering if the inquiry could even be conducted fairly. He was suggesting they'd already made up their minds. There's this kind of interesting relationship, isn't it, between public institutions where they all, because they're all set up to scrutinise each other, the press, parliament, government, there's a bit of finger pointing goes on. Do you think that relationship sometimes when everyone's kind of, you know, the government might be calling into question a parliamentary committee's findings or the media is then calling into question the government, is this kind of finger pointing? Does that kind of make the public go, oh, nobody has any idea what's going on. I don't know who to trust. Everybody's fighting each other or in on it together. Do you think there's sometimes a bit too much of that going on? It does worry me. I think it feels to me like a more recent trend and potentially a sort of slightly sort of populist Trumpian type trend that it's not that people contest the facts of a case, they contest the system which is Mm. trying to bring out those facts. So we saw this with the Owen Patterson case where he was found the most egregious case of lobbying by an MP that the Standards Committee had ever seen. But the response from the political class was to say, oh, but we don't think the system which, the standard system which conducted the investigation was fair. So the focus was not on had he done right or wrong, but on the system being the wrong system. So attack the system rather than defend the outcome. And that is a bit how it felt with the Privileges Committee, that rather than make the case about the merits of what Boris Johnson did or didn't know at the time at which he accepts that he misled Parliament, his his supporters wanted to question the integrity of the people on the committee. And I think that is problematic because, as I say, although there's potentially this counterproductive effect where if you have an effective system which can be used to find out about things that have gone wrong, that can drive down public trust. At the same time, people knowing that those systems exist and can be called upon and used and may have consequences Mm. is actually good for trust. And I think, for example, we saw Rishi Sunak came into office. He did what Boris Johnson and Liz Truss had not done latterly, which was appoint a prime minister advisor on ministerial interests. And then that person is now in place and can conduct investigations we think he should have gone further and given them a power to do that, to, to set up investigations independently. But it is important that he said, no, we need this institution. We need this person in place. And with the case of Nadeem Zahawi, which was the first investigation that the new advisor, Laurie Magnus, undertook, there were consequences following an investigation. And I, I think that has the when you have a system in place that operates and produces consequences, that has the potential to drive up standards of trust. I wanted to ask you about Sunak because obviously, as you say, when he came into um, when he came into be prime minister, he said, "I'm, I'm going to restore accountability, transparency, integrity," and then almost immediately we started to see the waft of scandal returning. So we saw the bullying allegations against Dominic Raab. 
There was the leaking of classified information by Braverman over email. And then, as you said, the Zahawi tax scandal. Do you think those things have all been dealt with? Oh, he would say they've been dealt with. So there's an ongoing inquiry into Rob's behaviour. Zahawi obviously resigned and then Braverman she <laughs> briefly left her post and then joined again. I wonder what your view is. Do you think Sunak's doing a good job at bringing back those principles into his into his government? Or do you think there's still a bit more of a way to go? So I think to some extent he's been unlucky in that some of the scandals that have broken since he became Prime Minister are legacy scandals that from before his time from under his predecessors. On the other hand, some of them do raise questions about his judgment. So he, as you say, appointed people people to his cabinet who have were the allegations made against them are from previous years but there's a question about what he knew when he appointed them and that's what the hopefully investigations that he has set in train will now be investigating the detail of that and so it's important that one when those allegations were made he set up those processes to look into it i think the, que- the question then is, what happens when those investigations report? How does he deal with that? The Zahawi case that I cited, the report came out quickly. It was published in full and there were quick consequences. So that felt like a, mm. a good way of using the system. We're waiting for further cases to play out. But I think that the, the thing that can end up being really counterproductive is if you have a system, it plays out and then actually the, the consequences either way don't end up being imposed. So I guess it may well be that, for example, with the Dominic Raab inquiry, that they they find there's no case to answer. And then that's one thing. But if there is evidence against him, which is put out there, then the key trial for Rishi Sunak is going to be what, what he does with mm. those findings. In a few minutes, we'll have more with Dr. Hannah White. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all of our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. It's available for both iOS and Android. Just search for The New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy The New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hannah, like me, you have a background as a parliamentary clerk, so you're familiar with the slightly strange ways in which Parliament operates. I wonder if you had any kind of reflections on how 
Parliament's set up as an institution, the way in which it operates, which is often through kind of these complex avenues of procedure that aren't very accessible to the public and various ways in which Parliament kind of works possibly contributes to this sort of distance between the public and parliament where they see it as an institution that doesn't really speak for them or they can't really trust to what extent do you think it's set up in a way that sort of inspires this distrust i think that's a big problem and something you kindly mentioned my book at the start something I, i talk about there i think that in some ways parliament almost cultivates a sense that it is a very sort of historic, complex organisation which people outside can't fully understand because that suits vested interests and MPs sometimes to be able to say it has to be this way. Mm. You you really wouldn't understand, so it it can't be criticised. And I think that can cultivate an unhealthy sense among people who are within Parliament that they should be an exception to various sets of rules which they ironically set for the rest of society. (laughs) And I think that is really problematic and that's one of the things that was most problematic about Partygate was everybody knew that their lives had been massively impacted by the rules set by politicians and seeing that those some of those politicians and civil servants didn't feel that those rules did apply to them, I think was really damaging. So I think that one of the things that Parliament, uh, question you raised, could do to improve public trust would be to accept that actually lots of its procedures don't need to be as arcane and complicated and they're all done on behalf of the public. So for the public not to be able to understand them, because sometimes it's convenient to be able to obfuscate for the people within Parliament is just fundamentally anti-democratic, I think. If we scale it back, obviously it's a problem if people don't feel like Parliament represents them or is talking for them or they don't feel that it's an accessible place for them. What are the other dangers of people feeling this detached from Parliament and government? What challenges does it present from a policy-making perspective or for an engagement perspective? It's fundamental to democracy Mm. that the people trust (laughs) the system. And I think that the working back, essentially, the problem is that people, if people don't trust the system, then why should they engage in it? So then they don't turn out to vote in elections. Then you end up with governments with very low turnout elected who don't have legitimacy to go about doing whatever it is that they've said they want to do. So it's fundamentally in everyone's interest, in the interest of, of politicians and the public, for people to to trust that decisions made on policy, for example, are made objectively, not to favour some particular interest, that the people involved are being selfless about it. They're not advancing something that they personally think is important. They're thinking about the public good, that people involved are acting with integrity and when you then have things about the honesty of people involved in politics, when things appear not to be open, that it's not transparent what's gone on, as we've seen in relation to some of the sort of COVID contracts, for example. And when you see that potentially the people who have these positions of great privilege and responsibility of running the country aren't showing the sort of leadership that you'd expect them to, all those things then lead people to be less trusting and then that undermines the whole system of government. Mm. So I think it's really fundamental and sometimes politicians forget that and they think, 
about the short-term political interest of covering something up mm. or getting a personal friend into a certain position or someone who they think will support their policy interests or whatever, something they can justify to themselves. And what they, I think that they miss is the way in which all those little actions add up mm. to lower public trust overall, which undermines everything they were trying to do actually when they were in government. I wondered if you had any thoughts about just the optics of this kind of huge crumbling palace in the middle of London that is really grand and opulent and inaccessible and you can't go in. Do you think that in any way contributes to this kind of us the feeling in politics? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of talk about restoring the palace or maybe possibly moving elements of it around the country. Do you think that's the sort of thing that possibly could better can contribute to better feelings of trust from the general public? I absolutely do. I think that the Palace of Westminster was built in the 19th century and it reflected 19th century society where there's a clear sense of hierarchy, where there were clear inequalities in terms of gender and ethnicity and all sorts of things. Colonialism was a massive driving, shaping force in society. All these things, that that's what the building reflects. The building reflects the values of society at the time and bringing in the public and the parliament being an institution which belongs fundamentally to the public was not part of that narrative. Mm. It was much more that you have this small class of privileged people who are making decisions on everyone else's behalf and that's how it should be. And when you look at other parliaments around the UK and you look at the Welsh Parliament and the Scottish Parliament and these buildings which were actually built in the last 20 years, you think how different actually Westminster could be yeah. because those those the, the Scottish and Welsh parliaments were designed to show that actually scrutiny by the public of politicians was what was important that and to welcome and to break down the barriers between what goes on in parliament and the public coming in and so I think there's a lot of concern about the cost of restoring the Palace of Westminster and it and absolutely needs restoring and it's really unfortunate if that means that this, these bigger questions about what people want from their parliament don't get reflected in thinking about what the buildings ought to look like as well as how it's run. Do you think there's a role for kind of parliament and government to do more kind of outreach? So obviously we talked about potentially moving around the country, but you could do kind of committee hearings in different cities or you could do I know parliament has a parliament week which is supposed to be all about outreach and engagement but you know a week out of 52 weeks of the year seems like quite a small amount of time to shove everything in and I think I don't know how many of our listeners would even know what parliament week is or would have experienced it so do you think there's yeah there are outreach things that parliament should be doing or any kind of touring or going into schools? Are there things like that politicians should be kind of prioritising a bit more? Yes, and I think Parliament has got a bit better at doing outreach and at bringing people to Westminster and having an outreach service that goes out and talks about Parliament. I fear that people often get the best impression of Parliament when they see it actually operating. Mm. When you you and I have seen select committees people watching set committees in action can be a really positive experience for people and when you take that out of Westminster you expose more people to that positive side of what parliament can achieve and so unfortunately the fact that it's it's a bit inconvenient and difficult and resource intensive and not as easy for members to get to wherever it is in the country rather than Westminster means that sometimes is discouraged and I think that that is a shame 
because I think it can do wonders for the reputation of parliament. And the civil service in some ways is leading the way on this, having campuses outside Mm. London, which civil servants can apply. If you're applying for a job in the Treasury, you can apply either to Darlington or to London and you can go and work in either location. You know, Rishi Sunak and other ministers go and work from the campus there. And I think there are things that the par- that Parliament itself ought to learn from other organisations, their efforts they're making to be less Westminster-centric, mm-hmm. which would be good for Parliament's reputation. Do you get a sense that there are people within Parliament who want to see that or are driving for that? Or do you think there's still a bit of, ever since, I guess the pandemic we're operating in every week as it comes mode how much of that kind of thinking about the future of parliament and its reputation is going on so i think there are some mps who think about this a lot Mm. but the difficulty is that the vast majority of mps have spent their lives trying to get themselves elected Mm. to parliament as it is and parliament as it is based in westminster and you get to walk in and sit on those green benches because your constituents constituents have elected you to do that and so they are amongst the people in the UK least keen (laughs) to change that model because it's one they've signed up to and they've accepted all the sort of shortcomings of the model and they are delighted understandably to be where they are and so when they get to Westminster they then start thinking about what it is that they got there to do which is to deliver for their constituents and their party agenda and whatever and so thoughts about parliament itself as an institution and how to make it more effective and as successful uh, as an institution as it can be are not high on their list of Mm. priorities which is a real shame and other priorities constituency party whatever it is tend to always override if there's a question about what you're going to put first. So the last thing I wanted to ask you because we talked a bit about government and parliament but obviously we've seen a number of kind of phenomenons happen in the last few years that have probably increased people's scrutiny around government and parliament and have had an impact on trust and I'm thinking of social media the spread of misinformation but also the the fallout from the pandemic and I just wondered in your work if you'd seen a marked change as these things are happening and taking off in how people talk about parliament or government or interact with it. Yeah that's a really interesting question I think that the public has fundamentally shifted its expectations of government, particularly through the pandemic, the massive intervention that had to be made to support people through furlough. And then following on from that, the energy crisis, and again, the big state intervention, I think it shifted the terms of trade for politicians in terms of what people think that they maybe have it should be the state's job to deliver. And I think that raises really important questions, which politicians are going to have to start to grapple with about levels of debt that we carry as a country and what what sorts of public services that we ought to expect and be able to deliver and what that means for levels of taxation. Now, these are questions that no governments really want to have to explore with the electorate, particularly whatever we are, a year, 18 months <laughs> out from the next election. But they are going to have to be tackled at some point because we have spent an enormous amount of money (laughs) over the last five or six years. We have real problems in our public services. We have increasing pressures on our public services and a huge increase in the cost of living, which means that people who are delivering those (laughs) public services are finding it increasingly unsustainable to have those jobs. These These are questions which are going to have to be addressed. And at the moment, whoever wins the next election 
the inheritance that they're going to receive is massively unpalatable. Mm. So I think that that has put politicians in quite a difficult position. One of the things that I think does, to bring this back to the start of the conversation, one of the things that affects people's trust in government is this question of delivery. And I think this is something that Rishi Sunak is from his actions appears to value and actually a lot of the time most people don't think a lot about politics but they do want a government which is going to deliver the basics for them Mm. ideally better than the basics so moving government away from a sort of constant psychodrama (laughs) and into a level of competence which delivers seems to me to be the direction that both Sunak and Starmer are pointing at. Now, that might mean for the press that this is very boring uh, <laughs> action, but possibly I think it might be a good outcome mm. for us all if actually some of our focus shifts onto actually getting government to mm. get stuff done. And that might in itself drive up trust in politicians. Mm. So it sounds like you're quite hopeful that we've got the adults back in charge and maybe people will start to feel a bit more trusting, a bit more like the government is actually doing what it's supposed to, a bit more like Parliament's operating properly. I think that seems to be the direction mm. both the leaders seem to be going in. It seems to me from my conversations in Whitehall and Westminster that actually MPs themselves are finding it a bit of a relief. Mm. As I say, it may only be the media. Hark back to the days of having exciting scandals to <laughs> uncover. <laughs> Thank you so much, Hannah. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Zoe Grunewald, and my guest, Dr Hannah White. We'll be back on Thursday discussing the week in politics. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. We're produced by Adrian Bradley. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out, why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search disorder wherever you get your podcasts.